Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 321st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I'm brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Erica, this morning we're going to be reporting on how risk adjustment and HCCs are impacting coding and CDI. It's a very important subject because HCCs also impact reimbursement for patient care for enrollees in Medicare Advantage. Indeed they do. And this morning Marie Morin was going to be discussing these impacts. Also on the broadcast this morning is Deb Greider. She'll be reporting on coding trigger point injections for pain management. Indeed. Good to have Deb Greider back on Talk 10 Tuesday. And Lori Johnson is standing by to report on coding and documenting child abuse and neglect. Oh, boy. Unfortunately, it's a national epidemic. We have much to report this morning, and we begin with Dr. Larry Field at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to listen to an on-demand webcast about the ICD-10 coding of Parkinson's disease. It features Gloria Ann Bryant. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me again. And again, I represent the American College of Physician Advisors. We'll be having a conference at the end of this month in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, briefly, had it, <clears throat> something happened to me yesterday, which was uh, a hospitalist happened to call me and wanted to learn how to become a physician advisor, and we discussed why. And he said, well, you know, I think I had enough of doing clinical medicine. And lo and behold, he'd only been in doing hospitalist medicine for about three years. So we had to discuss, you know, what it was that was bothering him about what he was currently doing. And in order to get there, we had to start why he was a doctor. And he told me back when he was in high school, a family member had had a bad incident, and he wanted to go on to be able to care actually for um, his family as his family was getting older and had a very large extended family. And he was interested in trying to be able to at least help them through uh, the system. And, you know, that sort of brought back the life in what he was discussing and said, okay, well, the next question was, do you really enjoy clinical medicine? He said, yeah, I do. It's just all this other stuff. And we discussed what all the other stuff was, all the way from whether it's documentation to the quality metrics to discussing things that should have been discussed as an outpatient uh, by a PCP with his uh, patient that was going to die, all the difficult things that are very, very challenging on particularly a hospitalist. And after we finished, we um, able to turn him around from, well, I really don't want to quit being a hospitalist. I, I'd like, I like the work. It's challenging the medicine part anyway. And we decided that on a weekly basis that we would talk and I would try and mentor him through um, some of the things that were bothering him, whether it was how to do appropriate documentation, um, not necessarily taking longer, but actually honing down on the important parts of doing that clinical visit that would satisfy all the outside people that were requiring him to do things. So whether that was 
whether it was going to be used for a billing purpose, whether it was going to be used for a quality metric, whether it was going to be used to defend why this patient was even in the hospital um, when he had to go in front of the ACO board um, on why this patient wasn't discharged a day earlier or two, all those sorts of things. And we had made the agreement that for the next six weeks, once a week, we will touch base for an hour to try and go through that. And for me, that was very satisfying to try and be able to keep somebody in medicine, uh, both because I'm getting older, and the other reason is there's fewer and fewer docs out there. So it became a, a satisfier for me personally. And this is something that continues to be a very large problem. It's not doctors that are 60 years old that are transitioning out. It's doctors that are within three to five years that are finding the system very, very difficult to navigate and to try and get something that satisfies them out of what it is that they're doing. Let's not forget that. Docs aren't the problem. Docs are the solution. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Field. That was Dr. Larry Field. Dr. Field is the treasurer of the American College of Physician Advisors. It's Tuesday. It's April 17th. It's tax day, and you're listening to the 321st edition of Talked In Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by ICD-10 Monitor, inviting you to register for an upcoming webcast on spinal fusion. Spinal fusion is one of the most frequently performed inpatient procedures in the hospital, and because this procedure is frequent and problem-prone, it's also a target of payer auditors. It's important for coders to adopt a process for coding spinal fusions, as demonstrated in this exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast, led by senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson. Complicating the issue is that many coders struggle with the anatomy as well as whether to code associated procedures. This webcast is a long-awaited educational solution to this vexing problem. To download this webcast, simply click on the ad on the ICD-10 Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Nationally recognized author and consultant Deb Greider returns to Talk 10 Tuesday this morning to report on how to code trigger point injections. With more on this subject, here is Deb Greider. Thank you, Chuck. Well, as we all know, pain management services are under many insurance companies' radar. That includes Medicare, Medicaid, commercial payers, because there is a high volume of frequency. So payers are auditing and monitoring pain management services very closely. So it's really important that to validate medical necessity that you follow the, the payer policy if there is one for pain management. And one of the uh, two codes for pain management for trigger point injections are 20551 and 20552. If 20552 is used when you have three or more muscles. And we need to, to understand that local anesthesia is included, but imaging guidance can be billed in addition if necessary, and that includes ultrasound, fluoroscopic guidance, MRI. And in addition, when I audit records, one thing I find a lot of times is that practitioners forget to use a HICS-PICS-J code for the, pain, for the medication itself, so that's really important. But there are three key areas that most payer policies have in their policies to validate medical necessity, and that includes conservative treatment, the documentation has to, to be specific in frequency. And I've done a lot of these audits for pain management services where p providers are asked to pay money back because they don't cross their T's and dot their I's, so that's important. 
So one of the things about conservative treatment that they're looking for is non-invasive treatment before giving a trigger point injection. And the first step to that is the evaluation to determine the site and level of pain along with the cause of pain is known. So I always recommend to my clients that a separate treatment plan be developed if they're treating chronic pain on an ongoing basis and making sure that that treatment plan is updated at every visit. Some of the conservative methods that most payer policies include are things like physical therapy, heat and cold therapy, passive range of motion, deep muscle massage, activity modification, home exercise, um, medication management prior to a trigger point. Many payers consider trigger point injection as the initial therapy only when joint movement is impaired, so documentation. The muscle can't be stretched fully or is in a fixed position. So if they're unresponsive or non-responsive to invasive treatment methods, that might be a trigger for medical necessity. But documentation, what does that need to include? The site of the injection, the number of injections given, the muscles, the number of muscles injected, and that conservative therapies had been tried and failed. And in many cases, payers um, want documentation that indicate the symptoms have persisted for more than three months and the trigger points have been identified by palpation. So, again, documentation and supporting medical necessity with the CPT code as well as the diagnosis to support that as well. Frequency is determined particularly by clinical judgment, but one of the MAC contractors, their policy states that frequency is dependent not only based on clinical judgment but also payer policy. And the repeat injections, if the previous injection is successful, is appropriate. Medical necessity has to be documented, and the diagnosis code has to be uh, di- accepted diagnosis on their policy. The pain should resolve in two to three injections. There's no more than two sites per session, and the limitation is dependent on their policy. Another payer policy only allows up to four sets of injection to um, therapeutically or diagnose the origin of the patient's pain, and then they only allow frequency more, no more than once every two months. So, again, check your payer policy because that's going to determine if your injections will be paid. So lastly, make certain documentation supports evidence of conservative therapy, the site and number of injections, and the number of muscles. Make sure you reference the patient's medical policy for details on limitations of frequency, along with diagnosis codes that support medical necessity for the trigger points. And don't forget to report your J-code and your MRI, fluoroscopy, or ultrasound if you use that when performing the injection. And again, the payer policy is important when reporting pain management. And lastly, when you have your records audited, make sure that whoever is auditing your records for compliance, medical necessity, and correct coding, that they actually reference payer policies or access those payer policies because they all vary in, in frequency of reporting those trigger points somewhat, but a lot of times they are unique and they need to be followed specifically. That was a great overview. Thanks, Deb. That was Deb Greider. Deb is a senior healthcare consultant with Karen Zupko and Associates. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Deb, thank you very, very much for an outstanding report. You can read Deb's excellent article on coding trigger point injections in today's ICD-10 Monitor e-news. Well, as you might know, April is Child Abuse Prevention Month. It's an epidemic in America with more than 1,700 kids 
who died from abuse or neglect in 2016. Here now to report on coding and documenting child abuse and neglect is senior health care consultant, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners out there. April is indeed National Child Abuse Prevention Month, so you may hear more comments or see commercials regarding this topic during the month of April. The Centers for Disease Control have published um, statistics. As Chuck said earlier, 1,750 children died due to neglect or abuse in 2016. They've also published one in four children experience abuse or neglect in their lifetime, and one in seven children have experienced abuse or neglect in the past year. Those statistics are difficult to comprehend. One last number, $124 billion is the lifetime cost of one year of confirmed child abuse and neglect cases. So this is not only a public health issue, but also has a significant impact to the health and human services budget. So let's talk about the coding of these situations. The portion of the 2018 official coding guidelines of ICD-10-CM that's applicable to this situation is Chapter 19 under Section C under the subheading F, which is Child Abuse, Neglect, and Other Maltreatment. The key factor to determine is if the case is confirmed or suspected. Confirmed cases report the injuries, a code from the T74 category, which identifies the case as confirmed, and an external cause code from categories X92 to Y09, which specifies the manner of abuse. A code from category Y07 is reported when the person who performed the abuse, known as the perpetrator, is known. The perpetrator is based on the relationship between the victim and the perpetrator. Suspected, not confirmed cases are reported with category T76, and the perpetrator is not reported. The patient's injuries would also be reported. If the injuries were suspected but rolled out, the coder should report Z04.72, suspected ruled out physical abuse, or Z04.42, suspected ruled out child rape. As you can see, documentation is the key. With regards to documentation, this is a good time to review documentation of suspected and confirmed child abuse and neglect cases. Where will the coder find this information? What are the key words that are used by the physician to identify these situations? What would be considered maltreatment? You can also have a conversation with your quality department. Are your numbers consistent with what they are reporting as well? There is a role for the coder to play in the public health issue of child abuse and neglect. So back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior health care consultant for Revenue Cycle Solution. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you, Lori, very much. You can read Lori's reporting on the coding of child abuse and neglect in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Lori will also be joining us later in the broadcast with a report on the new ICD-10 code. So stand by for that. 
Our lead story this morning is about risk adjustment and HCCs and how they're impacting coding and clinical documentation and integrity. Joining us to report our lead story this morning is Marie Morin. Marie is the director at the Alvarez Marcel Healthcare Industry Group. So, Marie, let me begin by asking you a question. Why are so many of us hearing more and more about risk adjustment methodologies? I'd say that there are several factors that are contributing to the reason this issue is gaining notoriety. First is we're seeing an increase in Medicare Advantage plans as our aged population grows, while at the same time we're seeing more and more physician practices being acquired by hospitals. These acquisitions give the hospitals an even greater vested interest in physician documentation. Risk adjustment is a capitated system using HCCs or hierarchical condition categories to determine payment. And although most prospective payment systems require us to furnish a service for which we receive payment at a later date, risk adjustments different because as a capitated system, we are using the information gathered during face-to-face visits this year to predict what it will cost us to care for the same patient next year. Accuracy in the documentation is imperative if we're going to make this prediction. You've probably heard of the CMS HCCs, but did you know that there's also an RX HCCs, which is used to pay for medications? These are two systems that CMS is using, but HCCs are also used by accountable care organizations, uh, patients in the Affordable Care Act, as well as the PACE programs. CDI is moving to the outpatient areas and physicians' offices due to an increase in in the number of risk-adjusted payment systems. And their HCCs are all different, which is another complication for coders. Each HCC is assigned a numeric value similar to the way DRGs are assigned a value. And the values of all applicable HCCs are added together to create a risk score. And other factors that may affect the risk score and the prediction of care include things like age, infirmity, severity of diagnoses, in a relationship with some conditions such as COPD and CHF, as well as the number of conditions qualifying as HCCs. So the higher the risk score, the higher the capitated payment. If we're going to make sure our risk score is high enough to provide care for this patient, we have to make sure that the documentation and thus the HCCs are correct. And given, in fact, that there is a requirement that all chronic conditions receiving ongoing care that may qualify as an HCC need to be documented by the physician at least once in a calendar year to be included in next year's risk score. Only about 9,000 of the more than 70,000 ICD-10 codes are assigned to the 79 HCCs used by CMS. So we need to clarify the documentation if we're going to meet what we call the MEAT, M-E-A-T criteria. MEAT is an acronym used to indicate that physicians should document that he is monitoring, evaluating, assessing, or treating a condition. An example of good physician documentation would go something like this. Mr. Jones is here for follow-up of his diabetes. HbA1c noted to be 6.5. Follow-up with dietary schedule. Medications unchanged. We'll continue to monitor. The problem is that many times the documentation is not that informative. Hence, the rise in outpatient CDI, as many times we need to query the physician to clarify the documentation and add specificity. What if the patient also had lab that showed some rise in NBUN and some microalbuminemia? 
is the patient having some complications of his diabetes? Did we capture that? Did the physician evaluate that as part of his ongoing care? All of this means that we need to clarify that documentation. The additional documentation could result in a change in HCC, one that's higher weighted, and in addition, if we capture a code for renal failure stage 2, then we have a higher risk score because it also qualifies as an HCC. CDI and coding clarification working together also serve to support the claim when risk adjustment data validation audits are conducted. And the OIG conducts a percentage of records every year for documentation. My recent participation in a long-term project that involved reviewing a magnitude of physician documentation to verify the diagnoses and thus the physician documentation supports the HCC on the claim have driven the point home that CDI and physician queries have a great place in the outpatient arena. Thanks, Marie. That was Marie Morin. Marie is a director at Alvarez and Marcel Healthcare Industry Group. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And Marie, thank you very much uh, for that report. By the way, uh, we're going to be featuring her story next week in next Tuesday's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. And if you want more information on risk adjustment and HCCs, please send me an email at cbuck at medlearnmedia.com. And by the way, you can hear today's live broadcast now on demand. That means you can hear it anytime, anywhere, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google. We asked Lori Johnson to return to give us an update on the proposed ICD-10 codes. Lori, we read about your reporting during the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meetings. What's the latest, and when might we know more about these new codes? Typically, after Coordination and Maintenance, next question is, when will we see these new codes? Well, the comment period recently passed for providing feedback on the ICD-10 PCS codes that were presented on March 6, 2018. CMS listened to the comments that were made during the meeting, during this public meeting, and will review the written comments before making any final decision for the new codes for fiscal year 19, which begins October 1st, 2018. The comments on the March 2018 ICD-10-CM proposals are not due until May 11th, 2018. The Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, will review the public forum comments as well as the written comments before making final decisions for the fiscal year 20, which begins October 1st, 2019. And yes, I did say fiscal year 20. The first glimpse of possible new codes may be published later this month with the release of the proposed rule for inpatient prospective payment system. Additional comments may be made on this proposed rule, which also includes comments on the codes. The final addendum for ICD-10-CM-PCS is published in June. Those final files are public available on the CMS and CDC websites. And under the handout tab, there, is, there are the URLs for where those files will be published. Prior to ICD-10, the final codes were not released until August. This change was made to accommodate software vendors so that the new codes would be available for October 1st, and it would make it a little easier in software preparation. 
You may wonder why it takes so long to incorporate new requests for diagnosis. The CDC must coordinate the new ICD-10-CM requests with the changes that are made in the World Health Organization's version of ICD-10, which is the base of all versions of ICD-10. The ICD-10-PCS originates in the United States, so CMS controls its development, so those requests can be assimilated much faster. We will see in the proposed inpatient prospective payment system rate role the potential new technology add-on payments to MSDRGs. If you would like to request a new code or code revision, July 13th is the deadline to submit your request. The agenda for the September 11th and 12th Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting will be published on in August 2018, and the online registration will be available from August 3rd 2018 until September 3rd, 2018, and you only have to register if you're planning to attend online. There is, and again, the handout is available if you want to see what the URLs are for the 2019 codes. So back to you, Erica. Yeah, I think you only have to register if you're actually going to attend in person. Um, thanks, Lori. Lori will continue her reporting on the new codes here and on ICD-10 Monitor. We've had a lot of news to report this morning from coding trigger point injections to coding child abuse from risk adjustment to the new ICD-10 codes you just heard about. Now back with our very popular segment called Talk Back. Here is Dr. Reaver. Chuck, when my grandmother of blessed memory was alive, she had a very bad memory. You got to tell her good news over and over again, and she would react with the same delight each time. She would ask me what kind of medicine I practiced and would repeatedly be confused because she could never wrap her mind around making a career of emergency medicine. I always used to say, where else would you want someone who specialized in that type of medicine, but in the ED where you need to make frequent rapid decisions sometimes involving life or death? Last week, I realized the answer to that question was in the hospital. Ron Hirsch from Monitor Mondays and I co-presented at the Society of Hospital Medicine. When I perused their website, I discovered that the term hospitalist was first coined in 1996 by Dr. Robert Wachter. There are around 50,000 hospitalists practicing in the United States today. When I first started practicing medicine, general practitioners would admit their own patients and do rounds in the morning. They would take turns being on call and might capture new patients from unassigned emergency admissions. This model persists in some settings, and my gestalt is that providers who still split their time between their clinic or nursing home and the hospital may be diluting their attention excessively. I suspect that some patients may receive care that is not the most up-to-date and that lengths of stay may be longer. It seems intuitively obvious that having a practitioner specializing in hospital medicine and who is physically present in the hospital 24-7 would improve standard of care. They know the setting, they know the system, the players, and they're invested. The conference had a great mix of clinical medicine, academic research, and administrative topics. I was sorry I could only attend the last day, but I found the opportunities and challenges in federal health care policy very topical and informative. It was also more than a little frightening that the message I received was that the average congressperson, even many, many committee members, are not well informed on what exactly we do, what our challenges are, and how they can help. 
Juliet Ugarte Hopkins, a frequent guest on our programs and originally a pediatric hospitalist, and Ron related to me over a lovely Indian dinner that the clinical sessions were excellent, updating them, for example, on current um, antibiotic regimens and TIA stroke care. Ron and I did a lively, if I do have to say so myself, session on what a physician advisor does. About half the attendees were already PAs, and the rest were presumably aspiring. Ron gave his perspective from the medical necessity utilization review case management side, and I gave the CDI angle. I told them that the most important factor is that the PA buy in him or herself. If you don't believe in what you do, you can't get the providers to change their behavior. I shared with them some of my techniques for getting providers receptive and engaged. I even had one attendee come up to the podium for a cup of Kool-Aid, which I had prepared for visual prop. So, here's to hospitalists who take excellent, efficient care of patients in the hospital, freeing up providers like my pediatrician sister to devote their time and energy to their office patients. A shout-out to Rich, who approached me after my talk to tell me he always listens to us on Talk 10 Tuesdays. And to everyone out there listening, what you do is important. You each own a piece of the practice of medicine, and we are all striving to make the system better for our patients. Grandma Libby would have been very proud of you. Chuck? Thank you, Dr. Reamer, and uh, Dr. Reamer, we're very proud of you as well. That's going to be a wrap for our 321st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and we want to thank you all today for being with us. We want to thank our guests today, Dr. Larry Field, Deb Greider, Lori Johnson, and our special guest, Marie Moran. Hope you'll be right back here again next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.